This week's episode of the Art of the Cut podcast is brought to you by LaCie. As one of the leading media storage companies in the entertainment industry, LaCie has consistently brought innovative ideas to the market. By now, everyone knows the iconic orange rubber bumper that wraps the LaCie rugged drive. But did you know that LaCie has a rugged SSD? With the ability to transfer 4K raw video with speeds up to 4 megabytes per second, hardware encryption, and a truly rugged design that will take most anything you can throw at it, including dropping it in water or running it over with a two-ton car, the rugged SSD is a dream piece of equipment for any content creator who is on the move. For listeners of the Art of the Cut podcast, LaCie is offering 10% off the rugged SSD or any other LaCie drive when you shop on filmtools.com with coupon code LACIEPOD. That's L-A-C-I-E-P-O-D at checkout to receive 10% off your LaCie purchase on filmtools.com. So next time you need a new drive, head over to filmtools.com and use code LACIEPOD at checkout to get 10% off your LaCie purchase. Hello, and welcome to the Art of the Cut podcast. I'm Steve Holfish. I'm a feature film editor and discuss the art and craft of film editing with my colleagues in film and TV. In this episode, I'm talking to Joe Klotz, ACE. Joe is an Oscar nominee for editing Precious. His filmography includes Rabbit Hole, Lee Daniels' The Butler, Yellowbirds, Paperboy, and To All the Boys I've Loved Before. He also worked on episodes of The Chappelle Show and Upright Citizens Brigade. Today we talk about his work on Motherless Brooklyn. I mentioned that I was having a call later on with one of his producers on the film, Gigi Pritzker, who he had worked with on previous films as well. I asked him if he got the gig through knowing the producers or if he'd worked with director Ed Norton before. No, no, I had not worked with Edward before. The way I got the job is uh, sort of uh, starts with reading the book uh, 10 years ago. And a friend recommended it, and I love the book. It sort of t- takes place in the neighborhood I live in, Brooklyn, um, set in the year that I actually moved into the neighborhood as well. Um, and then when I found out that Edward was developing it, I also found out, I kind of knew uh, my friend Bill Migliori, who is a, his producing partner, produced the very first film that I worked on. Um, and we went to Sundance with that. So I proceeded to get in touch with him and then hound him over the years saying, hey, if this ever gets the green light, give me a shout because I love the book and I'd like to, you know, get in a, have a meeting with Edward. You know, there's a funny side note to this. So that happened over several times because, you know, he was developing the script for a good, good 20 years. And then one day my wife called me and said, you'll never guess what just happened. And I was like, what? A location manager called her. She was working from home that day and said, oh, there's, there's a film that's looking for a living room in the Brooklyn neighborhood, you know, blah, blah, blah. And uh, in walks Edward Norton and Bill Migliori. And she knew Bill. Bill's like petting my dog and comes up and goes, oh, my God, Gisela, how are you doing? <laughs> anyway, it was a love fest because we were, you know, we were quite tight. He said, hey, how's Joe? And she proceeded to say, well, he just finished a job and he's available. She was trying to get me the job. Trying to get you out of the house? Trying to rent the house for a film shoot and get me out of the house. (laughs) What of your work do you think attracted um, Ed to you or do you think it was that personal connection with the producer? I mean, I think it was first the personal connection with the producer for him to suggest me to Edward. I, I know he did watch a 
couple of films, uh, whether he had seen them or not, or did some research. I do think it was precious, to tell you the truth, because he mentioned that in our, in our first interview, first and only interview. And then when we were cutting, he brought that up several times as far as how we got into her head and into these uh, fantasies and flashbacks that uh, run through Precious that, you know, uh, there's a similarity there because of, you know, Lionel's character. We go into his head and, and the way he he is processing all that he's going through with his Tourette's and his obsessive compulsiveness. And, you know, there's flashbacks and they're different, obviously, but, the, you know, how we dip in and out of someone's mind, basically. The last bigger film that I edited was also with a director, writer, actor. <laughs> and so I just wanted to talk about that. Um, I think there's a thought that maybe they would be precious or how are they judging their performance? Because they have to distance themselves somehow. And then how are you helping with that? Yeah, I mean, I was a bit worried about that myself. I had, I actually, the film I had mentioned earlier that Bill Migliori produced had the similar thing. It was the writer, star, uh, and his brother directed, but I was in the edit room with him. But anyway, uh, yeah, I mean, it's it's a little unnerving at first, but, uh, you know, Edward was quite gracious and open to, you know, uh, my input on that. You know, I was a little... Um, held back a little bit at first and uh, we just sort of ended up talking about Lionel his character in the third person so it wasn't like hey you why, why you know I think it'd be better if you had done this it's more like hey you know I like the way Lionel does this and let's look for this and that and and it just became very easy and there was zero vanity and just all like serving the film serving the character and um yeah, it was, it was a pretty fun and easy collaboration. And obviously, when you work with a director for the first time, it's a process. You know, you like you get to know each other, and uh, there's a little trepidation at first about how much you want to throw in there at what time. And then by the end, you're just firing on all cylinders and collaborating and trying to do the best for the film. Did his Tourette's, he has Tourette's in this movie, uh, the character... Um, did that cause any um, difficulties with continuity at all, or was it with the perform just dependent on the performance? Yeah, I mean, with his verbal tics and outbursts, there really wasn't anything different than normal continuity. I mean, he did mix it up a little bit. He didn't want it just to be all over the place, so he had his sort of go-to reactions um, and there was a consistency there, although there was quite a bit of variety. Um, so that wasn't the problem. There was a small bit that was a bit hard to deal with on occasion, which was a physical manifestation of his affliction, which was he would tap a character. Um, uh, I don't know if you remember. He would tap once yeah. and then tap twice and then tap three times. You know, that was established that he did that. And that took a certain amount of time to go through that little ritual and uh, we didn't want to truncate that because it needed to be the one, the two, and the three because that was sort of not the humor, but that was just the fun and charm in that as well. And, and, and him struggling to not invade other people's personal space because he knew it was wrong. Um, so that continuity of always making sure we did that. And if he did that, did he do it 
pretty consistent. Did he do it while he was saying the same line? So you could cut between things and stuff like that. So it was a little bit limiting, but it wasn't that hard. There was a couple times, if you look closely in the film, where we didn't let him do the full run on that. And you see a little touch here, but then you move on. But uh, you can get away with stuff like that. Yeah, I didn't notice. Tell me a little bit about narration. Did that change? How did that affect you? How were you scratching or was Ed scratching for you while you were in the room? Well, uh, the shocker of that is that the original script had no voiceover in it. And, um, you know, we cut the film without voiceover. And it worked pretty well as far as we were concerned, but we thought there was a little bit of uh, distance uh, to our main character, a little bit of a reserve, a little space between the audience and and him. So, you know, Edward said, you know, I've been holding this in my back pocket. Let's start playing with this. You know, and voiceover is sort of a familiar trope in film noir as well. Not all the time, but it's not not out of the out of the the norm. I was sort of into it too. You know, a lot of times films that don't start with voiceover, lean on voiceover to save, uh, fix problems and all. But I I think this helped us elevate the connection between the audience and the character. And it had a nice arc where it was sort of uh, a little bit reserved in, in, in his performance at the beginning. And as you go through the film, it gets a little bit more personal, a little bit warmer. Listen, it was it was brilliant to and fun to be in that room just had a mic stand, you know, he'd run run through what he was thinking and then we'd just record and he would sort of st- stroll around the room sort of getting into character with a whole lot of concentration and intensity and come up to the mic and and he'd just like, you know, are you rolling? And I would just like, you know, give him a little nod to so not to break his concentration and see him go for it. And, uh, you know, and in the beginning, I just let him, you know, I didn't say anything. And then, you know, as we went through weeks and weeks of this, it would be like, you know, I really liked when, when you or Lionel did this little thing or, you know, I gave, didn't give him direction by any stretch of the imagination, but, you know, I participated in what I thought worked. And then we'd try to cut it in and then we'd say, mm, yeah, let's, that's not fitting just right. And the words need to be tweaked a bit and he'd go back for it. That, I think is a failing for a lot of films when you're like, okay, yeah, we're going to do voiceover, blah, 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 and here, you know, and you you temp your voice in or you grab, if it's a woman, you grab somebody in the office and they temp it, and then you time everything out and maybe the actor scratches it on an iPhone and sends it to you, but then it just is recorded later and put in. I think that's a failing because I think the intimacy of voiceover in a movie is you just need to work it over and over again as far as the the writing and as far as the performance and just going into a, a booth for you know a few hours and knocking it out I don't really think is, does the film much much good. I mean that's what we did in Precious too. Oh, God, I'm talking a lot. No, that's uh, that's the whole point. I, I people don't want to hear me talk. Okay, um, that's what we did with Precious as well. I mean. Gabby Sidibe came into that edit room. She was, you know, we were cutting in Manhattan. She lived in Manhattan. She would come three, four times a week over the course of a few months, you know, and and Lee was writing and she was performing and he was pushing her to, you know, in that film, she goes from sort of uneducated and then as she goes through school, she progressed to being much more eloquent. So that was, you know, had to be finely tuned and... And to the point of, okay, well, 
that's a scratch because she's doing it in the edit room. Um, we were in the Brill building right on Broadway and, you know, I have a mic that I got at a yard sale and the buses are going by and they're recorded. That's in the film because she never matched it and he tried and he said, we're just going to go with what, you know, we recorded in the edit room for for most of it. Wow. And uh, yeah, so, I mean, I just, I'm working on a film now and we're scheduling the voiceover and I'm like, oh, you just, let's not just do it in a day, you know, but contractually that might be the way it is. Just two things about uh, narration before we move on. One is you mentioned the uh, Edward kind of walked around the room and got into it and then spoke. It sounds like it wasn't scripted or was it scripted? He was just trying to get into character. A bit of both. He definitely uh, worked it out ahead of time and uh, shared that. And then, but he definitely created on the spot as well. You know, as he was, he'd say the line, he'd be into character and say the line and it wouldn't feel right. And he would turn the phrase and sometimes look at me and I'd give a thumbs up and or whatever. Not that I'm, you know, whatever. He would, you know, was trying to support him when it sounded right. Yeah, it was, it was great. It was, uh, it was, it was a lot of fun to see that come alive. Did you see Ad Astra? I did. That was originally uh, written and edited without narration, which shocked me. I'm like, how do you do that movie without narration? <laughs> I don't know. No, exactly. Yeah, because uh, the internal, you know, voice of that main character. Yeah, it's interesting that both those movies were were originally without narration. Very interesting. Tell me a little bit about Temping. Did he have very specific ideas about what he wanted to do musically that he just told you? Or were you? did you have a bunch of jazz records <laughs> that you were pulling stuff from? Oddly enough, obviously, he had... Winton Marcellus there to to help him curate what was going to be played at the club, and that was all sourced out and, and recorded well beforehand. But as far as temp goes, he really didn't want to lean on a jazz score. So he and and myself included are are big fans of Radiohead and Tom York and Johnny Greenwood. So I, we tempt a lot of that. Uh, you know, There Will Be Blood, and then just a lot of, you know, some of the more obscure, discordant, tonal stuff of Radiohead to give it the, the right mood. I was, uh, you know, I go back in my Spotify list, I've got like <laughs> Daniel Pemberton's, you know, uh, list from five, six years ago. I've always been a fan of his. When he was given the nod to come do this, it was quite exciting. And and then I, and I started exploring some of his newer stuff. And I think was it for all the money, all the money in the world. I used a lot of that to temp. Um, and I know sometimes probably composers hate that when you temp their other uh, score from another movie into into the current movie. You know, because it's like, uh, excuse me, I want to do something different. Um, but it really worked for some of the more tense things, like the the, the race up to Harlem. To, to save Laura was, uh, I tempt with that music. You know, then Edward went to London and worked with him and I thought they really knocked it out of the park. I really love that score. Oh, that's interesting that you say that about composers not wanting to temp with their previous score. I just, what I just did, you know, we got all the composers' old music and I tried to only temp with their score. Oh, what did they have to say about that? <laughs> they want to do something new that they haven't done before, but they also don't want to have to match John Williams. <laughs> no, <laughs> that's a good point. There's a yeah. great sequence uh, where Brooklyn Norton is uh, dreaming or high, and it transitions into a shot of 
uh, I think Alec Baldwin swimming. Was there a trick to getting that transition right from the dream to the reality of a new scene? Um, yeah, I mean, it was, you know, it, it was scripted and, and planned out, but it, it, it completely evolved. I mean, he, he's, he smokes some opium, I believe, and falls back into water and he's sinking into forget, forgetting about the, the tragedy that just happened. And up through that water, we see somebody up in the, up above him as he sinks to the bottom. And there was just a, a simple shot of one you know, body double swimmer swimming through the frame. And um, it didn't have, it had just had a few frames when he was in the frame completely by himself. And we wanted that to last. So we pushed it back and, you know, we've got our visual effects uh, supervisor, Mark Russell, involved early on that and kind of did some kind of looping and pushing the swimmer from you know left to right and they tried many different kind of uh, visual effects there and and sort of we settled on this kaleidoscopic mashup and uh yeah and then just let the sound sort of pull us out of that reverie and into the the reality of the shot of Moses Randolph swimming in the pool because there's a, a timing right you need you need to feel him drop and and not do that too long or too short. It just felt perfect to me. So I was interested in the timing of it. It's very the special effect thing is really interesting. Yeah, yeah, I was I was excited by that. Yeah, well, the timing. You know, sometimes the footage dictates what the timing is going to be. <laughs> you know, because as he falls back, you know, it want, we didn't want to have him flailing. So there was just a certain amount of time where he was sort of doing this more ethereal free fall. So that sort of dictated what what worked, and we slowed it down a little bit, and there was a couple angles from above and below, and just kind of worked it as much as it could be worked. There's a car service scene where they they kind of say, just do the car service. They you know it's a detective agency that also picks people up and you know drives them around, um, and you made some great use of some jump cuts. Uh, can you talk about that? Was that the first place there were jump cuts in the movie? Um, I believe so. Um, yeah. Yeah, I'm pretty sure that was that was it. You know, there were some other places where we were sort of in his head, um, voiceover wise and thought wise. I love a good jump cut scene. You know, he's 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 processing what he heard in that original scene, and you know, I don't think the the jump cuts come out of the blue. In that, there's some other stylistic things that happen beforehand, um, i.e. the the scene where he's on the phone listening in on the meeting with Frank, his his boss, that that turns sour, um, you know, and that's shot very obliquely with shadows and out of focus and odd framings. That was done to get into. He's on the phone, and we're trying. And he's listening, so we're trying to portray what he's hearing and how he's perceiving that, which is Frank, his boss, is sort of in, is pretty sharp and focused because he knows him. But he doesn't know the other characters that are around him in that room because he's not there. He's only hearing it. So his, you're, you're in his mind, and he's trying to bring them into focus so he can, so his obsessive-compulsive mind can sort of remember it and, and, and live it. And that was cut fairly jump you know you know it was pretty jumpy and and obliquely like i said um so getting to those to those jump cuts he's he's processing what he heard which is this word formosa and he's just trying to figure out 
what that means and breaking it down in all different ways. And obviously to let him do that in one fell swoop would have probably been about 45 seconds of writing. So jumping it and having him mumble and, you know, and have some having some good music there, let us feel how his fragmented mind is processing that information. So that's what the thought was behind that. Uh, you mentioned flashbacks earlier. Uh, tell me a little bit about the um, those flashback sequences. There's a shooting and then Norton's character throughout the movie remembers the shooting. Can you talk to me about cutting those? Uh, and did you affect that stuff or colorize it while you were editing? I mean, not obviously the final color, but were you changing it so it felt different? Yeah, I mean, what transpired there was, you know, Edward said, you know, I kind of want, you know, Lionel, I, I call him Lionel, not Brooklyn, is kind of trying to pull out all the clues of, of of what led to his mentor friend boss's death. And um, so he basically rewinds. So up to that point, we rewind what transpired in that, in that sequence. And then he starts playing it forward and back and forward and back and very fragmented. So what I did was, you know, the color is, is was a small part of it, I, I think. Um, of course. Yeah, no, no. The editing was the, the main part. Yeah, you know, I, 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 what I did was I just sort of edited the sequence in a pretty fragmented but inclusive way of all that happened and then said to my uh, assistant, Beth Moran, and our uh, apprentice, it's like, okay, you, if you guys can figure out how I can scrub full frame on the Avid and record it at the same time and then put it back in the Avid so I can edit what we're recording. So I edited the piece. I guess maybe they made a quick time out of it and put it back in and, and figured out a way to do to capture that. And I just went, went in and when they had it all set up and just played it and then grabbed it and scrubbed it forward fast and stopped and back and forth, uh, you know, 15 times and created, you know, what, 20 minutes of footage, real herky-jerky and then landing on on specific freezes of, you know, of Frank, Mena's face or, uh, you know, just as the gun went off and and then took all that footage and edited that to be part of his flashback and then desaturated it and added some color and stuff like that. Uh, um, I only saw it one time. Uh, I'm assuming there was a bunch of sound design to that too or no? Yeah, yeah. There's. A, it's funny, I've only seen it one time in the last year. I mean, I finished it Christmas time last year, and I've only seen it once since then. I mean, actually more than that. I went to to the final mix in January, but uh, yes, I've, I'm trying to remember it all. I was hoping to get a copy of it. But uh, anyway, um, yeah, Paul just did an amazing job. You know, I mean, there's some rewindy stuff and, you know, the guns echoing and there's, you know, sounds from the from the moment. And um, yeah, he, he just, he did a really great job with that. This isn't necessarily about this specific movie, but there's multiple places, uh, as in many movies, where the score crosses between scenes. Um, what When you're cutting an assembly, do you bother putting in temp? Or are you waiting for those scenes to be able to be joined before you put temp? Or how does it work on those scenes w where music crosses uh, between? Um. Yeah, you know, some it's weird, you know, it's I wouldn't say it's arbitrary, but sometimes I just get this feeling like I don't want to put temp in, I want this I want to make it work without leaning on that crutch. 
And then I love music so much that that's really hard to hold back, you know. Um, and, uh, and obviously, if you choose the right piece of music, it, it can elevate a scene. Um, but yeah, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll choose something for a scene that, that needs it. And, um, and then really, you know, if, if there's a moment where it feels organic, like it could come out before the scene ends, then I do that. And if it doesn't, I just let it cut out or trail out until, you know, the glue between those two scenes, there might be a transition shot that I don't have yet that you can let that music dissipate through and have a clean palette when you come to the new scene or, or sometimes that music is just the right piece of music to take you into the next scene. So it really is obviously on a case by case basis. Uh, but it's a really great question because uh, just working on a movie now that has a lot of music and it's just, you know, it's a lot of fun when it works and it's a pain when you're trying to, how do I get out of this and shoot that there's a great song that is is kicking off the next scene, but how do I get out of the music of of the previous scene and uh it's uh can be a conundrum but it's a fun one yeah and uh i've been at this for a while and i'm I'm really kind of enjoying um you know doing some temp music editing you know and then you know feeling proud of myself and then you know and then i hear it with an audience and i'm like oh my god what have i done and then getting it to a real music editor and, and getting it done but uh, there actually is a fun story that uh, I, uh, Tom York wrote an original song for the film that we had before the movie was shot called Daily Battles. And it's the song that is used when Lionel is walking home after Frank has died and he's going back. And it's right previous to that scene where he smokes some dope and falls into the water. Um, and it's a real sad lament as he walks through the streets of Brooklyn. And uh, so we had that song and I cut that whole, you know, sort of trip back to his apartment where he cries on the stairs and everything. And it was all set to Tom York's song. And uh, in timing it out, I could not make a good music edit to make it work. And we needed it to, to land at a certain place. So I did a pretty slop edit. And then Edward said, uh, yeah, Radiohead's in town and Tom York's going to come by and I'm going to show him that scene. So oh, I was like, no. Oh, I was like, oh, no. And I worked on it for, you know, I stayed late and worked on it. I got it better, but I didn't get it really, I didn't get it well. So Tom York came in and I'm a big fan and I was, you know, I was, went to see them when I, their very first album came back, you know, 20 years ago or whatever. But anyway, uh, I had to play that scene for him and I put a caveat out there I said there's a very mediocre or bad music editor there and he was so, he was very gracious and laughed and uh and then uh yeah we got a professional to do that in the for the final I have to ask about the dailies this film is gorgeous when you started seeing dailies for the first time did you just like want to sit there and stare at the tv I mean or were you you know the monitor Yes, eventually I did. It was just like the first couple of scenes were a couple of rough ones. Uh, that the scene with Frank up in the in the uh, up in the uh, meeting with the, the the corrupt government officials and stuff, uh, and that was I was like, what? Um, you know, it was like a three minute scene of all this oblique, out of focus stuff. So I was a little, I said, this is gorgeous, but I have no idea what I'm going to do with this. Um, um, but yeah, I mean, it's just day in and day out of the, you know, this gorgeous footage of New York. Um, 
that Dick Pope nailed. Um, you know, it was good. It was a really fun mix of streets and locations and, and studio work. And um, yeah, it was just, it's, and it, and it evolved too, you know? I mean, he did so much with the color correct. It was fun too seeing that come to life as, uh, you know, as a 50s tableau. Um, because you know they found great locations and us, but there had a, there was a lot of visual work to be done. And to cut a movie where you're, you know, there's a big chase on a bridge, and then you know later that night you're leaving town, going over the same bridge um, with your family to to get away for the weekend. Um, so I was feeling very connected to New York and enjoying that process. Uh, while we're on the subject of dailies, uh, you mentioned like the difficulty of that. Uh, phone call scene uh, how do you watch dailies do you watch them very actively putting in locators or sub clipping or creating a selects reel or are you letting them kind of wash over you and then you do something later i i have a, a process that i guess i don't know how it developed was it just uh doing independent films that were under the gun and time frame um, but it's, uh, it's a bit unorthodox in that, you know, in the early days have like this paralysis when you, when you come to a scene, like what do, where's my first edit coming from? So my trick was like, okay, here's a circle take that's a medium or a wide and I'll see all that they're going for. And I just lay that down. That's the first thing I do. I don't even look at the dailies. I just pick one of those things and play it down. And if there's a, you know, if there's a break in it, I'll, you know, just cut it together. Or I'll choose another take that's seamless. And then I just start at the beginning and watch. I don't really take notes. I'm not, I don't really, uh, you know, when I, what I, I just watch and go, if something hits me, if I feel something like, oh my God, that's a perfect acting moment or that little look is great. I try to go with that initial very first reaction with my gut that moves me that hits me that excites me and i'll cut that in it'll be like here's a big wide shot and there's three close-ups in it you know and and then i take the next take and then the next take, and it's a little bit fragmented and a little bit disjointed um but i know we're going to go and i know a lot of these edits aren't going to you know they're, i'm not making edits that are smooth or anything i'm just sort of that's how i start cutting the scene because I, I know when I, I've tried it before where I take notes and, you know, and I'm like, I, I don't, I don't want to be looking at a piece of paper or a computer screen with notes. I want to be looking at the footage and, uh, and really preserve that, that initial reaction. Um, you know, it's a little bit cumbersome. Sometimes you miss a connection, but I'll, I, I will listen. If I really like two things, I won't throw away one thing. I will stack it or sometimes even in the script on, you know, the, on the, on my script book, I'll, there'll be a line and I'll just write, oh, take three, write down the time code as, you know, just put a note, great alt and blah, blah, blah. Um, so that's basically how I do it. I, um, Very interesting. I like that. I'm going to have to try that. That's a really interesting method. It's almost like doing a selects reel using a take as like a placeholder or a, a timeline that you can lay it on top of. That's yeah, it's a, it's a template, basically. Yeah, very interesting. That's a really interesting way to work. Um, 
you know, the jazz club sequence. Can you talk about the challenge of editing music that needs to appear to be playing live as characters speak and interact with it? Because it's one thing if you just have, you know, some music in the background that they're not really playing or listening to, but it had to be all interactive with the music. Yeah, yeah. It was a, it was a little daunting at first. I'm like, I was kind of like, how am I going to do this? Um, but they prepped it really well. I mean, basically, you know, in the jazz club, there's three songs. One, Blues Walk, where they just sort of come in and the band goes to the stage and Lionel and Laura settle in to watch and they have a conversation while it's going on. But I, so I just cut the performance, um, the full song, knowing pretty much that we weren't going to use the whole song, but uh, maybe close to it. Then on the dialogue side, there were certain bits of conversation that was interrupted by him reacting to the music. So they had to be timed because his, his Tourette's uh, run would be sort of like the run of the music. So it, it, was, it, it would be the music, and then he'd run that same series of notes just verbally. So those had to be fit in at a certain place. But, you know, the magic of that, too, was they shot the band with four cameras and they shot that conversation and the subsequent songs as well with three cameras. So I had a lot of choices. So that worked out. And and there were also bits of their dialogue where they were playing the music so so Edward could kind of do those runs and be in sync and get the music. And then there were other times where they ran it without the music so the dialogue could be clean and I could insert insert it into the song um, where, wherever it worked. You know, and there were some things that weren't tied to the music, so I could be like, okay, well, this is a little introductory thing that they say here. And then he can hit the music could overwhelm him here. And then he has a little interaction with, with Laura here. So it, there, it was a lot of variety of stuff that was had to be sunk. And there was stuff that was looser that I could move around and place um, wherever wherever it was needed to, to, to create that flow. Also in the club is a ballad uh, that the band plays um, that uh, Laura and um, Lionel dance to. Was your approach the same for that scene? Or was it more cutting, was that more like cutting the performance of the actors and then dropping? Yeah, exactly. And because that was designed to, you know, not be one shot, but to be on them to let that evolve in front of you. Um, because they just met and to, to have that be really intimate so quickly, I think was, had to be handled with, you know, uh, kid gloves. So, um, so basically chose a take that that really moved me and was great and Edward obviously chose that take as well then dropped in some musical bits you know when the trumpet player throws it over to the piano player in a really soft moment you know that uh, really added to the to the mood of the moment and well first of all the song is is actually the Tom York song Daily Battles that is played earlier Wynton Marcellus did a jazz arrangement of the Tom York song. So that theme threads through that song. And, um, you know, but also there's a, at that at that point, Laura's uncle and his henchmen are watching them and wondering what's going on between those two. So there was a fair amount to cut around to. And, but it, it was, I was just trying to stay on them and let that intimacy grow uh, as much as possible. I'm always interested with, uh, specials, you know, special shots that are obviously, you know, more than just your typical coverage. 
whether there is coverage and how those kind of things evolve in the edit room or between you and the director. And the one that I wanted to talk about is when um, Gabby Horowitz speaks at the rally and the camera follows her out of the car. There's a there's somebody talking. The, the, the speaker at the rally is speaking and you're hearing him, but you're watching her get out of a car and walk up to the podium. Was there coverage? Did you... Did you just know, oh, my gosh, what a great shot. I just have to stick here. Or what was the evolution of that? I believe there was a little bit of coverage. That's how that was designed to work in the film. And I love those special shots, too, but only when they work. You know, sometimes when people do a special shot and it doesn't work and they were relying on that and didn't get coverage, you kind of get boxed in a corner. But that one really worked, yeah, because the car drives up, they jump out, and it tracks with her to the podium. I love that kind of stuff where it's like, it's not real obvious what's happening. You're hearing the sound of what's happening. You're hearing the other speaker. You're not seeing the crowd, but you're hearing it. And then she gets swept into it. You're, you're kind of with her. Uh, and I think that really pulls the audience into uh, experiencing it the way, you know, you would want them to. Yeah, I, I love the, I mean, obviously a lot of the, with a special like that, the, it was the directing of the timing and everything. But for, for the timing to work out perfectly and, and you're like, oh, well, you know, of course the shot is just the way it's supposed to be. That's it just felt very organic and wonderful. I loved it. Um, Sometimes they get it right in production, <laughs> thankfully. <laughs> Come on, we don't have to save everything? Come on. We like to think we do. Uh, Another one, and, and I don't I, I hesitate to say anything because I, I loved the editing of this entire movie so much. Um, was there coverage of Norton and Laura in bed? There's a scene where they're in bed and there's a cutaway in the middle of their conversation. I was wondering what the coverage was or... Um, did they, were, was it like just a two shot or I'm laughing because I know exactly what you're talking about. There's the, a very strange shot of a mirror, uh, that sort of comes out of the blue. We, we did not have some, we did not have a lot of cutaways. And like I said, I've, it's been a year since I've really delved into the film, but I do remember we had a really good reason to use that and why we couldn't just go to a reverse of the other person. But that scene, I don't know, I guess I'm at liberty to talk about this, but that scene evolved in a in quite a interesting way in that it uh, follows on the heels of Laura's uncle being killed and Edward escorts Laura up to her apartment and it becomes romantic and they fall into bed and, you know, and it's the next morning and it, it's alluded to that they had a, you know, uh, and, a, and a romantic overnight. And uh, that kind of bumped uh, some people, bumped me a little bit when I read the script. I was like, well, that's a little bit, you know, awkward on the heels of a tragedy. Um, we tried to make it work and tried to minimize it and just have it be as far off screen as possible. And and it's still, you know, in some test screenings, it's still bumped. Um so basically, that scene was reshot, but we could only reshoot half of it because the set had been struck. So Laura's side, when you're shooting over Edward's shoulder to her, that is from the original. Because basically what was changed was a little bit of the dialogue, but it pretty much stayed the same. But what changed was, on Edward's side, he was not shirtless under the covers, he was in his clothes on top of the covers. So it feels like 
she had asked him to stay to to because she was you know emotionally distraught and needed company and that was it was a platonic stay and um and so that's how we recreated that and then the stuff on over his shoulder where you saw his shoulder they painted on a shirt anyway so it was a lot of machinations a lot of prepping of what we needed what angle what you know the the film was the scene was cut with what we were going to use on on her side and then so we knew exactly what we needed on his side that's really interesting because I was thinking, man, it didn't bump for me at all. And obviously it's because of the, you know, yeah. the changes in the scene because I thought it's I thought it was very natural that, uh, you know, he was comforting her and here's this tragedy. But sometimes that leads people to be vulnerable when they might not be. So uh, the scene really worked for me, but obviously... Yeah, we jumped through some hoops on that one. <laughs> <laughs> oh, wow. That's pretty incredible. And I think Gugu was in London. They, they flew the, the headboard to London and, and shot it <laughs> over there. Oh, that's amazing. Um, and so you worked with Lee Daniels several times. How did that relationship start? And how is it different than collaborating with him than it is with someone that you've worked with the first time, like Ed Norton? Um, well, there was a first time with Lee as well. Um, I interviewed for that movie after his, uh, some of it had been shot, and uh, I think I got that job because he showed me some dailies of Monique, and I said, that's a nomination for Best Supporting Actress. And he said, really? And I'm like, it looks amazing. And then she went on to win. So we didn't mess that one up. But um, yeah, I mean, working with Lee was a lot of fun. Um, and it was hard too, but he he was great. Like he said a couple of things to me at the beginning. He's like, that I'll never forget, which were, don't edit yourself. Give me the most bold, raw, outrageous, you know, what you think works for the film. And he said, I will edit you. Um, and I was like, okay, that's interesting. <laughs> um, and he said, I, what I want you to do is we'll talk about the scenes and I'll tell you where I want it to go and what my thoughts are, And but I want you to bring what you can bring to it and I'll let you go do that and then I'll come back. And he goes, I want you to make me fall off this couch. You know, we were in a little tiny room in, in the Brill building, like I said earlier. And uh, so I was like, okay, that's a challenge. And uh, so, yeah, it was fun. And I I didn't make him fall off the couch too many times. But a couple of times, you know, he started leaning forward more and more. And a couple of times he came off the couch. Um, so it was nice to have that kind of uh, collaboration. And um, uh, there was a lot of room to play and experiment and 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 as as happens with every director edward included it's like you know it's good to get a little space to to sort of work out what they're asking you to do and then that space you know so here you know you talk about the film or a scene and this is what my intention was and this is how you cut it when you did your first pass while i was shooting and i like this but i think we should try something there and then they go away and let you do that um, and then come back and take through a couple more rounds with this. And then as time goes on, they're just in the edit room more and more because you're fine tuning together and making bigger decisions. And, and so that is my optimum. And, and I had that with Lee's style and I had that with Edward's style too, you know. You know, when you start off with somebody new, it's uh, you've got to create a language and, and a trust, you know. And I, I just sort of, held back and made sure I understood what his intentions were with the film and where he wanted to take it. 
and uh, just sort of figured out a way to help him take it there. And uh, as, as we go further, you know, he, start, he started trusting me and I could start putting myself into it more and, and helping him, you know, achieve that. I just sent you um, some scenes. Uh, can you look at some of these links quickly and tell me um, if, you, if they trigger anything with you to talk about or challenges to the edits or whatever? It's Willem Dafoe at the diner. Yeah, I mean, the challenge for for that scene, you know, he's a pretty outrageous character, and that scene has a whole lot of exposition. So it was sort of a balance between making it fun, making sure we left, you know, tightening it, making sure we included what was, you know, what was necessary to, to move the, the plot along and reveal who he was, you know, this this kind of tightly wound, overzealous character who's trying to you know uh, achieve his own ends but also sort of help end the, the corruption of the city I'm always interested on scenes like that of where you play dialogue on or off thoughts on that either with that scene or generally it's just I go with my gut it's just obviously you're not going to just cut to who's ever talking so if somebody gives you something when they're saying a line, you make sure you keep that. And if somebody gives you something as a reaction to what that line is, you go with that. And it's like, uh, you know, that married with when I'm in the overs and you can see the other person is or isn't talking. And when you go into the close-up for a clean uh, reaction shot and or, or a clean pre-lap of the, you know, the, the line... Um, yeah, it's just about creating flow and, and, and those little spaces between lines and those overlaps of lines. And, um, yeah, I just, I just think it just comes with doing it a lot. I love, I love that. I love, a, I love a good fight, not physical fight. I love a good argument too. It's, uh, it's always fun to just, you know, work with, well, they were heated and they actually have overlapping lines or they didn't and I've got to create them. And, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's always a fun day when you're creating something really intense like that. Um, yeah, I, I think of action sequences sometimes when I'm cutting those, getting like adrenaline, almost like you feel like you're running a race or something when you're just editing. Yeah, I had a blast with the the whole race up to Harlem where he jumps in a cab knowing that, you know, the girl's in danger and, you know, she's going to get killed if he doesn't get up there at a certain time. And then the fun with that is, with that run for me was the the variety of the pacing, you know, there's this driving music and, you know, and we're, she's getting off the subway and he's, you know, telling the cabbie where to go, running up the stairs and then boom silent you know right in front of the door then it explodes again you know besides working with edward and having a blast with him was you know working with great actors and great dialogue and anyway um just really and and all that action was just really it's a was a bit of a, a dream come true uh, you've edited numerous movies all very you know fantastic i've admired your work for a long time what do you think got you a nomination for Precious. Why did your peers think that was the movie? Well, that's, uh, that's a tough question. If, um, from somebody who's, who's humble and doesn't want to, uh, I don't really know. I mean, <clears throat> you know, I think the film works. I think it was a hard film to make work. Um, you know, there's a lot of 
brutal raw things going in that in, in that going on in that film and um it seemed like a for me a perfect storm of of it all coming together and and having a fun creative input but i you know i guess it it moved people and they and they thought the editing works it's you know it's a hard film to make work because there are you you know the style is is a little bit up front you know you're the editing is seen you know where she's jumping into flashbacks and fantasies and you know it's it's a little bit all over the place so i was uh i was happy that that was uh appreciated um sort of has a little bit to do with my background i mean i i have a number of films under my belt but i started cutting shooting and editing news and and cutting music videos and cutting ads and cutting commercials and cutting promos for dateline and i did all these crazy things before i was like finally got to do what i wanted to do all along um but a lot of those things sort of influence and inform you know the ability to to go have her jump into a flashback and it be a music video or to degradate the video in a way like a dateline uh promo where you you mash up the video and you know do all sorts of treatments um so that's a little bit so that was a little bit in my wheelhouse um so i, I was like i said it was a little perfect storm for for what i think some of my um um uh, proclivities were um, but yeah, I really don't know. Yeah. Uh, I was quite surprised and quite, it was fun for me because it was like, okay, this is great. Cause I'm never going to win. And I don't, you know, so I can go and enjoy myself. And my wife and I had a really fun time. Uh, so, okay. I'll, I'll turn the tables instead of having you to talk about why you thought you were nominated. What, uh, because I think one of the reasons is people, who are editors can see the difficulties that you probably like, wow, there's sometimes there's films where you, the, the editing is evident, uh, you know, the jump cuts in motherless Brooklyn, um, flashbacks, that kind of thing where you're like, wow, that's, Oh, there's the editor. I see him. And then there's the invisible editing as well, but you still know that as an editor, that that stuff had to be, uh, manipulated and treated and thought about, when you are trying to choose an Oscar nominee or an Emmy nominee or an Ace Eddie nominee, what are you looking at um, of your peers' work to to see that they're worthy? Um, that's a really tough question. You know, uh, part of it is because I I, I I feel lucky that I have the ability to like go in and watch a movie and just be like a regular audience member and not be like, let me try to pick this apart. You know, I just like, thankfully can let stuff wash over me. Um, so I guess if something's really bad, then I'm like, oh, okay, <laughs> this is, this is not working. Um, but in reality, I mean, I think, you know, if something is really smooth and I feel like I'm being, handled you know elegantly the film's being handled elegantly you know i think a lot of it has to do you know with if the style of the editing fits the subject matter um like you're not trying you know here's a straightforward drama and it's like wow bang zoom you know or it's just off you know and you know and is and when you pick that style is is the tone in that even and and working to move the story forward uh in in the right ways and uh it's appropriate to the subject matter you know when a scene is cut really well because you don't notice it you know you 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 feel moved you know you're 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 lost in the moment and that's 
that's that's kind of how I judge. And then, you know, when it does come to voting, I just figure, well, what moved me? What films moved me and why? And then I might go back and see them again or delve into thinking about more particularly how the editing worked and what I think went into it. It's hard because you don't know. You know, you could have a director who's just dictating what's what's to be done and it could be a really well edited movie and in it's every and or you can have brought a little to the table or you could have brought everything to the table and it's every shade in between and you know uh, nobody really knows but so it's it's a hard thing to judge it is a hard thing to judge uh last question for you um which is about structure is there another yeah. film that uh, you felt needed to change structurally a lot that you've cut um yeah there was a couple non-linear films that you know nearly broke the bank they were really hard when you have something so many options i did a film called the yellow birds which is a, a, a an iraqi war movie and uh same with a film that's coming out in a couple of weeks called all rise that was at sundance called it was originally called monster that was pretty much very fragmented and structurally moved around and <clears throat> like i didn't even I think for Motherless Brooklyn, I didn't even put cards up on the wall because we were we were going pretty straightforward. But for these other couple of nonlinear uh, films, I had a magnetic board and I found we were doing push pins and I'm like, this is this is tedious. So I found these little magnetic things that could hold an index card and you can move them around and and not have to, you know. And then I also learned then okay when that's the that's the new structure. I remembered to take a photograph of that magnetic board because then once you start moving around it's like let's go back to that well yeah i have it in the avid but it's that visual representation was uh i i I needed to rely on um but yeah you know you know with motherless brooklyn there was there was the the structure didn't change much but we added some things too you know it was at the end of the film he he was driving off and we added a scene where he drops off the information to the reporter. Uh, it was, it was, uh, that was not in there. It was more like, okay, uh, I don't really care about the city. I care about the girl and I'm not going to pursue Moses Randolph. And, and then he decided, we decided to change it. Joe, thank you so much for your time today. I really appreciate your, uh, talking to about this film with us. Yeah. Thank you. It was great. I really uh, appreciate the effort you put into this. It's, uh, it's, it's a fun listen for, uh, for me as well. Thanks for listening to the Art of the Cut podcast. Also, check out ProVideoCoalition.com for more than 200 interviews with the world's top editors. Or read the book, Art of the Cut, Conversations with Film and TV Editors, for a topic-driven, curated experience. Thanks again to my guest, Joe Klotz, ACE. I'm Steve Hullfish. If this is a podcast you got something out of, give us a like, leave a comment, and make sure to tell a filmmaking friend.